Well, 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 nice to see everybody. Great to be back. It seems like a long time. I did appreciate Matt's, I watched, live streamed to check him out and I wanted to see if Noe would show up too. And Wonderful. And I appreciate Matt's uh, selection of scripture. Both were from the Old Testament, isn't that good? The inspired part of the Bible. So that was just wonderful. We're blessed here at Sagemont Church with an abundance of those who can impart biblical truth in different settings and at different times. That's just not true of, of all churches. We're very fortunate about that. I don't mean just staff. I mean, the quality of lay teachers we have here is pretty phenomenal. Uh, and uh, uh, what well, we shouldn't, I know you don't, we shouldn't take it for granted. So I know a man named Edwin Montalvo. And uh, he comes to church here when he's here, but the rest of the time he spends his time in another country uh, called um, New Hampshire. I think it's New Hampshire. Anyway, it's one of those, Edwin's watching, so Edwin, if I didn't get this right, I think I'll hear from you. It's one of those New England states, and Edwin's a super guy, loves Sagemont Church, considers himself to be part of the body, but when he's uh, away on business, he, he tunes in and as an increasing number of people are doing, what a great blessing and privilege that is. So Edwin's super duper Bible verses are up before us tonight. Now I want to read to you what he wrote to me. He said, I decided to share with you what I referred to as my bookends. They are Isaiah 64, six and 2 Corinthians 5.21. So Edwin's gonna get two verses for the price of one tonight. He said, I call them my bookends because as I see it, they define the problem and give the solution to the problem. I wasn't familiar with either of these verses, really, and as I uh, slow down to study and reflect, boy, Edwin is so right. Bookends. One clearly states the problem, and the other just is clearly the solution, as you will see. So, uh, before we get to this specific passage in Isaiah, a little uh, background beginning here in Isaiah 64, verse 1. A at this point, Israel was in sin, really bad sin, and for a really long period of time. And Isaiah, um, God's prophet, who thus had a divinely inspired capacity to see into the future, saw a day when even Israel, sinful though she be, would repent, and yet not without great tribulation. I mean, that's how far into the future Isaiah saw, into a period we call the Great Tribulation Period, otherwise known as the time of Jacob's trouble, which, provided, will, which will provide for Israel the motivation she needs to repent. So that's kind of the scenario, and we read this in verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Uh, uh, the people of Israel who are, who are repenting and turning to Almighty God, a remnant of believers are in that day turning to God and petitioning him this way. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Here's what they're asking for. Oh God, the condition of our fellow Israelites is so desperately evil and sinful. We need a divine special visitation, the likes of which you have blessed us with in times past. Oh God, please come again in such fashion 
that people will see you and respond appropriately. So that's kind of the context so far. And here's the next verse. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. So the believers, a remnant of Jewish believers in that day, are calling upon God to manifest himself so even those who are his adversaries will fall at his feet, recognizing him to be the one true God. And it says in verse 3, When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. I think this may be a reference to what happened on Mount Sinai. Israel liberated from bondage for 400 plus years. She needed to be constituted at a people. She had been a slave people. A slave people is not really a people until they are constituted as a new people group. And so God gave a constitution on Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments, and much more as well. He delivered those to Moses, known as the Lawgiver. And uh, on that occasion, there was thunder and lightning, and the mountain shook, if you can imagine it, because God established briefly his presence on that very mountain. I assure you, he had everyone's attention. Nobody dozed off. And these people in that day are essentially praying for something just as striking and dramatic to, to come upon the people in that end times day, which we know to be the great uh, tribulation. And verse 4 says, For from days of old they've not heard uh, or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. People have lost sight of you, O oh God. They, they, don't, they do not lend their ear to what you have to say. Their eyes are not open to the reality of your being and of your presence and of your compassion and of your greatness and of your holiness. Oh God, we need you to manifest yourself so that these who for whatever reason have not even heard of you would come to know you would be confronted with the reality of your presence because folks are living as if you don't matter. You're not part of the equation of life anymore. Oh, giver of life, manifest yourself as the essence of life. That's essentially what, what's being called for here. So that's, that's the context. And now verse 5, you meet him. Who, who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we have sinned. We continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? That's the question. They're rehearsing and reflecting on their own sin, and it was of such duration and magnitude they couldn't even imagine maybe even that they could be saved they knew that god rejoiced in the one who does righteousness but who does and therefore they were overwhelmed by the reality of human sin which was characteristic of every one of them from the priests all the way down nobody in a different category and they just wondered how could it be that even the most gracious god could bring himself to save us. And can we even be saved? 
And now uh, to Edwin's very specific verse, which he labeled the problem. And, and he labeled it rightly. Here's the verse. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us, there's the phrase again, all of us, no exceptions, wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, a fancy word for sin, like the wind, take us away. Folks, uh, that is a description of, as it says, uh, all of us. And yet, I'm sure you would agree with me, this is not a description of human nature that most humans feel comfortable accepting. Uh, we, we don't want to be confronted with this. We would rather seek to persuade ourselves that we're actually pretty good people, not perfect, but pretty good by nature. You know, we make mistakes from time to time. That's the description. You know, we have good intentions. We mean well. Nobody's perfect. We make mistakes. The problem is not that we make mistakes. The problem is this. And can you see how askew our self-perception is from God's declaration of who we are? This is what God thinks of human nature. This is his opinion of what we are like. This is a big, big problem. People hate this. People hate the doctrine of sin, and they hate the doctrine of the reality of God's wrath because of sin. Those are very unpopular topics to bring up today. People don't want to hear that. And so to deny it, we're on a quest to build ourselves up. We even have the audacity to utter this as a philosophy of life. Believe in yourself. Come on, folks. Believe in yourself. Do you know what yourself is like? It's rotten to the core. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is candy, even you. This is our nature. All of us, all of us, the verse said repeatedly. So we really hate this. And so we really are exerting ourselves, making efforts at, to sort of cover up for it all. So we do a random humanitarian good deed from time to time. I notice this is really prevalent with the rich and famous. Living the most unbridled, immoral, the most unrestrained lives. The Hollywood crew. And yet engaging in random acts of philanthropy from time to time. You know, save the spotted owl or whatever. And it's a means by which that very person seeks to persuade himself or herself, I'm not that bad after all. Look at the humanitarian efforts I'm making. Well, I spent half of my Saturday over in Galveston walking along the beach collecting plastic so that the fish don't eat it. I'm not that bad. Doctrine of sin? Impending wrath of God? I picked up garbage on the beach in Galveston. Can you see? That's what, that's what we do. But 
But folks, that's a problem because that's God's perspective on who we are. We are not basically good. I know people want to think that a baby is basically good. I know we want to think that, but it isn't really true. Look, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. Those are not my words. That's what it says. Just to see a New Testament verification of it. Are you familiar with this one? Uh, there is none righteous, not even one. So this is the equivalent of all of us. All of us are unclean. There is none righteous, not even one. Uh, to, the word righteous here means to be in right standing with God. This is haunting. There is nobody who is, in, who is positionally in right standing with Almighty God. Think about this. He's the God with whom we have to make do. We have to stand before him, but we have no standing with him. No one is righteous. Nobody. So in light of all that sin has done to us, is it any wonder that Isaiah cried out, as he did, and shall we be saved? And so just to highlight for all of us have become like one who is unclean. Now, the original writers would know the impact of that phrase. Uh, he, Isaiah is saying, all of us have become like one who has leprosy. Remember in the Old Testament that skin disease was met with a number of rules and regulations because they didn't have the kinds of treatments for those sort of things we do today. So someone who incurred leprosy was put out and away from the flow of society, lived with other unclean people. Not only that, if you had this kind of uncleanness, you were disqualified from even offering sacrifice and worship in the tabernacle or temple. And Isaiah is making that pronouncement, not, not just upon those with leprosy, but on everybody, all of us. See the haunting phrase, all of us? All of us have become like one who is unclean. Furthermore, this phrase, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So as I mentioned, we, we make a feeble attempt at uh, rendering righteous deeds. Good things here, a good thing there, that kind of deal. I think in an attempt to persuade God we're not so bad, it's almost a bribe. Oh, God, if I do this thing, you know, and take care of the turtle that's about to be extinct, you know, don't drive a big car, you know, get a hybrid or whatever, change my light bulbs, whatever this token stuff is. Well, then, God, you'll look the other way and go after someone who's got the wrong light bulbs, maybe. But you know what God is saying? Remember, all those righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Now, I notice we're all adults in here. So I'm going to go in this direction. Here's what Isaiah really said. All our, of our righteous deeds are like a filthy menstrual cloth. Yuck. That's what the word filthy garment is a euphemism. It's like, a, it's like a menstrual cloth. In the eyes of Almighty God, an attempt to be right with him by our token doing of isolated righteous deeds to him. 
it's like a filthy garment. <clears throat> He's saying this to Israel with traditions that are so rich, temple observances and feasts and holidays and food and dietary laws and songs and dances and of a religious kind and all kinds of stuff. And Israel religiously offered and manifested those things to God and he said, they're like filthy garments to me. You know what he says through another prophet? I think it's Amos, but I may be wrong. He says, your songs are like noise to me. Now, if you've ever gone to a synagogue, I have once or twice, but not lately. Um, the singing is really quite beautiful, moving. It's, it's kind of chanting. It, we, there's a cantor or a chanter. It's cantorial singing back and forth between singers and congregation and it's quite it's quite liturgical and quite beautiful and god says they're noise to me <gasps> they're noise they're noise to me if you do not have right standing with an otherwise unapproachably holy uh, god then what you offer to him is not acceptable you have to be in right relationship with him first before he will accept anything we offer to him and that's why Isaiah cried out, can anyone be saved? Look at us. Even when we engage in all these beautiful traditions and religiosity and liturgy and all the rest, even then, <laughs> our motive is not pure. And God sees right through it and labels these things in, with the graphic language with which he labels it right here, filthy, filthy rags. Um, we were talking, some of us earlier, about great quotations from Winston Churchill and also Martin Luther. That's a pretty high-level conversation, now that I think about it, we were having. And um, Martin Luther's uh, quotes are just amazing. Here's one that's quite meaningful. Look, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. That's Martin Luther. <clears throat> so Edwin's verse goes on to say, and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities uh, like uh, the wind uh, take us away. By nature we are, in other words, spiritually lifeless by nature, just as is a dead leaf on a tree, ready to be blown away by more sin. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our sins have just taken us far from uh, our maker, a holy God. They've carried us to a place where God is not. And as a result, we have been rendered unfit to be in his presence. Unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. Folks, this verse, uh, Edwin's first verse 6 of Isaiah 64, represents this very unpopular doctrine. It's called the doctrine of total depravity. It does not mean that we are as bad as we can be. It means that sin has permeated 
at literally every aspect of our being, our thinking, our heart, our will, our words. Everything is corrupted by sin nature. There's no part of our being that is uh, safe, un touched, uncorrupted by sin. That's the doctrine of total depravity. You know what this means? Edmund is right. We have a big problem. We have a sin problem. And, and here's what makes it worse. We don't have an adequate solution for it. It's one thing even to recognize the problem, which sadly many do not. But even if you do, what can you do about it? I want to briefly show you some of the things humankind, we typically do, try to do about it. And for this, I, I want to take us back to Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 3. Here's the first thing the first of us did to deal with their sin. They tried to cover their sin through their own efforts, Adam and Eve. They tried to cover their sin through their own efforts. And so here's what, here's what we read in Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They realized their nakedness, meaning their vulnerability before Almighty God. There was no place to run nor hide. He saw them through and through. That's what's in view here. And what was their approach? We must do something in our own strength about it. Let's sew together an apron of leaves. Let's come up with a covering of our own fashion. And that emanates from our own effort. You know, what they did? They created the first world religion. That's that. That's what every religion has in common. It's man's attempt to cover up for the nakedness of our sin through the doing of man-made stuff. That's what every religion has in common. They created the first religion. It did not work. So they did something else. Here's the second thing. They tried to hide from God. And we read about it right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord, uh, the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Not at nighttime when you get scared. No, no, cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Hey, let me ask you a question. Uh, who made the trees? They tried to hide themselves in God's world. <sighs> Can it be done? You can't run from the God who sees in the dark. That's the second thing. First thing they did, they, they, in human effort, tried to cover up for the nakedness of their own sins. Second, they just tried to run from God. And here's the third thing they did. Uh, they tried to blame others. So we read this. Uh, and the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And so Adam is blaming it on the woman. And that is accurate. No, it's not. Approximately half of you agree. So blame shifting. And men were masters at it. 
the reason why I turned out to be a mass murderer is because my mother never breastfed me. It's her. The reason why I robbed banks is that my dad never came to my Little League baseball games. Blame shifting. Well, it goes on. Look at this verse. Uh, 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 verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, not just the man who shifted the blame, so did the woman. The serpent deceived me and I ate. There's an element of truth to that. I understand that. But she's still culpable. So he's blaming it on her. She's blaming it on it. It doesn't work, folks. So they did these three things, but they're inadequate responses to our sin. Can you see the extent of the problem we have? We have a sin problem, and we know not what we can do about it. We don't have a solution for it. We really need God's merciful help. We really need him to cover up for the nakedness of our sin. Did he do it? Yes. Yes. In fact, we see it still in Genesis 3. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You know what that is, folks? That's the gospel according to Moses. That's the good news of God's merciful and gracious provision for our sin. What we could not do, he did. That's the gospel in the Old Testament. This was all done on God's initiative, his mercy and grace. Herein lies the solution to our sin problem. It is God providing a covering for it. And who is the ultimate covering for our sin? Now let's move to the second bookend of Edwin uh, Montalvo's verses. Uh, here's the solution. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Before we go further, um, who is the him? Oh, Jesus, you think. So the him is not you? Is the him me? Is the him a president? Is the hymn a pastor? The hymn is Jesus. There's only one. This text is about only one, about Jesus, who had no personal experience with sin. Now, I want to tell you about a new uh, belief that's taking over, according to a recent survey, many of our younger evangelical Christian people. They believe that Jesus and fleshed actually sinned. Thus, he identifies with ours. That's the teaching. No, no, folks. This verse does not say Jesus became sin. It says he became a sin offering. Sin was external to him. It wasn't part of his nature at all. That's a terrible, heretical point of view. Man, I'm getting nervous about what people are embracing. That is just not true. 
Jesus had no personal experience with sin. He was not made a sinner. He was made a sin offering. Big difference. Sin was outside of Jesus, though it is inside us. It was not a part of his nature, though it is very much a part of ours. Our sin is imputed to him, and get this, his righteousness is imputed to us. Oh my goodness. Our sin is put on his account. His righteousness is put on ours. You know what that's called? This. The great exchange. Are you kidding me? He took our sin. We receive his righteousness. That is the great exchange. He was made sin. We are made righteous. On the cross, Jesus exchanged our sin for his righteousness. In other words, the innocent one was treated as if guilty so that the guilty ones, us, could be treated as if innocent. This is the great exchange. This verse shows us that God's purpose in Christ dying for us was not merely that we would escape judgment, as marvelous as that is, but also that we might become righteous, have right standing with Almighty God. We could never attain that, you see, on our own. The standard is way too high. True righteousness, being right with Almighty God, is only attainable through Christ. He's the solution to the sin problem. So, to spell it out a little more, on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he was a sinner, though he was not. And we are treated as if we are righteous, though we are not. That's the gospel message. That's what's so great about the gospel message. That's what's so unique about it. You can't find it anywhere else. No faith group, no religious group can offer this great exchange. Now, we mentioned earlier the doctrine of total depravity, but here now we have this doctrine. It's called the doctrine of justification. See, the doctrine of total depravity defines our problem. The doctrine of justification defines the solution to the problem. Simply put, to justify is to declare righteousness. It's kind of a legal pronouncement. Justification is an act not of man. It's an act of God, uh, whereby he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Jesus, the righteous one. So, so to uh, clarify, justification is God's declaration about the sinner. It has nothing to do with what the sinner does or does not do. It's God's declaration about the sinner, all of grace and mercy. It has nothing to do with what the sinner does or does not do. Make all the aprons of leaves you want to. You don't get points with God. But when he declares you to be righteous, you are righteous indeed. This is justification. Furthermore, justification means someone who is guilty of sin is declared innocent. By whom? <laughs> By the very God against whom he has sinned. I hope the gospel message doesn't get 
ever to be commonplace or taken for granted for us. I've been a Christian since uh, September 5th of 1973. I wanted to be as fresh today as then. I, I'm part of the great exchange. I, I've been justified by the blood of the Lamb. I'm pronounced, I'm acquitted of my sin. I'm pronounced as one who has right standing with an otherwise unapproachably holy God. Folks, he, Jesus, bore our sins and we are clothed in his righteousness. But wait just a minute. How could this be if God is just? If God is just and if God is holy, doesn't that mandate uh, that he exact a penalty for the guilt of our sin? How in the world could God be said to be holy and just if in fact he lets the guilty sinner go scot-free? In other words, here's the question. Is justification just? That's the question. Here's the answer. You bet your bippy. Yes, it's just. Because justification does not ignore our sin at all. Justification has addressed it through the sufferings of the Lamb of God, Jesus. A penalty has been paid. God took our sin seriously and our sin has been fully punished in Christ Jesus on the cross in our place we dare not be tempted to add to the throes of the crucifixion didn't Jesus suffer enough if God has left you off his hook because of the merits of Christ don't put yourself back on it and get into a bunch of works righteousness thinking that you have to add to the merits of Christ on the cross. No, no, no. Jesus paid it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. This uh, gift, this great exchange, is uh, so wonderful to receive and I think just as wonderful to be shared. Could I remind you and me, this is really the reason why we're still here on planet Earth, to share good news about the great exchange. Nothing else makes sense to me. I don't know why we're still here, but to be emissaries of this magnificent message. So as a goad to that, to help me, me to stay mindful of this great privilege and responsibility I have to tell others. You could be, your sin problem could be solved. There is a solution. To do that, I've come up with my benefit. I've come up with 40 words uh, because I, I can't remember too many more than that. But I worked on it and I memorized it and I could share it with someone in such a brief period of time even the busiest UPS driver or the busiest tree cutter who I have to get next time. <laughs> I could say, hey, thanks for doing such a great job on the tree. I'm excited about that, and so will my wife be. But let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me.
It was when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sin through the death of his son Jesus on the cross. Forty words, folks. And then all you have to do is say, what do you think? All you have to do. Have you ever thought about that? Something. Whatever the person says, you ask God to give you wisdom to make the next comment. He does. He does. He doesn't give you what to say before you need to say it. That's why you and I are reluctant to say it, because we don't know what we're going to say. Well, just get started. And God will give you what you need when you need it. The best way to become better at evangelism is just get in the process. <laughs> just, just do it. Forty words. I would like to challenge you to memorize those words, in, in your own words. I, I, I think this encapsulates the essential elements of the gospel. Oh, I know there's much more, but you gotta get it started somehow. You gotta get it started. You know, what I, I, you know how easy it is for me uh, uh, to make conversation about things that don't matter, uh, unless you think this matters. I could easily say to someone, hey, how about those strows? By the way, how'd they do tonight? No, you know, did they win? Oh, they're still playing? They're still playing? I, I, haven't, I haven't seen people quite so excited. You're not nearly as excited about the Bible lesson as about the Astros, my heavens. So, but look how easy. So anyone comes to the door, I can say, hey, how about the Astros? Why can't I say, hey, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I want the Astros to win just like you. Of course, no question about it. But I don't want to really cause a division in the church here. Whether they win or not really doesn't matter eternally. It doesn't matter. I've been thinking a lot about what really matters. You matter. People matter. God's word matters. Eternity matters. I'm grateful to Edwin uh, Montalvo for suggesting these bookends. He's right, the problem and the solution. Now, we know the solution. We have been made privy to the great exchange. Don't keep it a, a secret. Don't keep it a secret. You know, I make the mistake of reading news, listening to news. Every Looney Tune in the world <laughs> is sharing what they think, sharing their opinions and whatever. We've been entrusted with the solution. Why don't we share it? We have truth that can set a person free. We have truth that can solve a person's sin problem. Hey, so let me encourage you. And no, I know what. Let's pray. We'll pray. Forget about encouragement. Let's pray that God would give us one opportunity to share the good news with one person this week. And if you want to use this method, it's okay. It's not copyright or anything. Take it. Just go out, have eyes to see. Maybe even tonight, somebody who God allows to cross your path. And just make it happen. Sometimes I do it this way. Look, it's not awkward at all. I say, I know you're busy. You got a bunch of stuff going on. But I got to tell you this. Let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened. I just do it. Once you get going, that's right. Well said. That's exactly right. So, Lord Jesus, yes, we bow before you with, 
real thanksgiving. My heavens, we're persuaded of our problem and that we have no solution, but you provided the solution in your own flesh and blood. Lord Jesus, because of the cleansing power of your blood, we have been pronounced righteous. We have right standing. Now, we must live righteously, but thank you, O oh God, for the foundation of righteousness laid by faith in Christ Jesus. And here's what we pray. It's our desire. Would you give us to eyes to see one person? Would you give us the inclination to take advantage of one opportunity to this, this week to talk to people about the problem and the solution to sin? Oh God, I pray that you would do that. You don't have to, but what a great blessing and privilege it would be for us to represent the great exchange, the gospel message. You took the guilt of our sin and imputed to us your righteousness. Oh God, put it within us to have eyes to see one needy person out there who has yet to respond rightly to this message. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.